Oh, yeah, give it up for her. Yes. That makes me so excited. All right, I'm not going to lie to y'all. This morning, had a cup of coffee at 8.30 a.m. All right, usually I have my first cup of coffee when I get here. And so the caffeine is starting to hit me right around this time. But because I had it at 8.30, the caffeine is now flowing through my veins at full strength. And so God bless you and Lord help you. Because uh, I don't know how fast I'm going to be talking right now, but it's probably going to be fast. So I'm going to start a timer. Uh, hey, I want to first start out by just saying thank y'all. I uh, really appreciate the fact that I've not been here for two weeks. I've been here, but I haven't been preaching. And it just gave me and my family time uh, to, to focus on important things with the passing of my uncle recently. And I just want to say thank y'all for that space and that time. I hope that y'all deeply enjoyed your break from me. You still had to hear me talk quite a bit, but you didn't have to hear me talk quite as much. And so uh, I hope you enjoyed the break you had from my voice. Uh, I'm also just really grateful and, and excited to be back with you, to be quite honest. And so I want to go ahead and just jump in. Also want to shout out the fact that Tim Keller passed away this week. I just really want to say that because that really, really made me, it hit me in the feels. Uh, I always said that Tim Keller and N.T. Wright are going to be the two people that I'm the most sad about when they pass away, and that was, that was true. So maybe you're with me in that. And so uh, the, the, Western, the Western Church collectively mourns the passing of Tim Keller. But um, I want to get started right now and, and head into our time in the Bible. Uh, and you, you hear us call the Bible the Word of God, and you've heard that said a lot. You've probably said that to yourself. And I think that's really important. I think that's a really important name. Because what we mean by that is that we believe we got these words in the Scriptures from God. And therefore, when we approach them with an open heart and a humble heart, he meets us in them. And that's why we set aside such a healthy amount of time to dive in to these words, because we believe that through them, God does actually meet us. And that's powerful. And so we want to do that right now. We want to do that by continuing uh, in a sermon series, uh, kind of a subject of sermons, uh, entitled Flashback. We're going to finish this up today uh, in Romans 13. And I know we were supposed to go all the way through Romans 12 and 13. We missed some weeks there, obviously the past couple of weeks, but I want to honor this section of text by, by finishing up with its closing thought, because I think it's powerful, uh, and, and I want to invite you into considering that closing thought through inviting you into considering a question, and that question is this, how does getting close to Jesus change the way we live? How does getting close to Jesus change the way we live? A lot of us have wrestled with the feeling or the question of how does this change my life? What does this do? Is this just about going to heaven? Or is there some form of impact that happens right now, right here? And I think that the, I think that the truth is in the latter, that there is something that impacts us here and now. Is it an eternal message that, that God has made a way for us to live eternally? Yes. Uh, but, but there also is an impact now. What we're going to do to kind of investigate this idea is we're going to go into Romans 11, I mean, sorry, Romans 13, 11 through 14, and, and kind of work through that. We're going we're gonna to pull out some ideas from here, but we're going to start in verse 11. Uh, and in order to just start in verse 11, we first have to have a bit of a conversation about morality. Okay, everybody say morality. Oh, yeah, that's a, that's a committed and attentive bunch of, ooh, Jesus. Okay, so morality, most, more particularly, the idea of moral instruction, because up until this point, what we unfortunately had to miss up till now was the fact that Paul, from uh, the beginning of 13 up until these last verses in 13, is providing the church with a lot of moral instruction. He's telling us how to live. And if I'm being honest, and if you're being honest, we need to have a conversation about this because we missed it, one, but also because our relationship with moral instruction is pretty weird. 
it varies from person to person, right? Each one in here, as I thought about my own relationship with the idea of someone telling me how to live, I started thinking about the ways I responded to it, the way my wife responds to it, the way my children respond to it. And, and it, it, it started making me think there's a lot of ways we respond to this. And I started thinking about the, maybe the ways we respond or if we had, could narrow them down. And I started thinking about one, maybe you're part of kind of like the obedient group where you receive more instruction and you love it. There's nothing more that you want to do today than get just some moral instruction because you're going to go out there and you're going to live that mess. And you've probably done really good with moral instruction, to be honest. You've probably done really good with it. And so you really kind of use it maybe to define yourself a lot. So you define yourself as a son or as a daughter based on your, your obedience and, and based on, I mean, you, you define yourself as a parent or as a sister or brother or as an employee. And you might even define yourself that way as a Christian. And, and this type of experience of, of having moral instruction and then doing it so well may even impact the way you experience and the way you interact with others because you might have this struggle where it's like, man, I just feel really judgmental when I feel people struggling because I am not struggling with that. So you struggle to produce mercy in those moments. He's like, how is that person struggling with that? I've never struggled with that in my life. So maybe that's you, but then you also might be in another group. You also might be in the rebellious group. All right, I'm going to raise my hand a little bit on that one. Right? You just hear the idea of moral instruction and you're like, leave me alone. I don't like it when people tell me what to do. Shut your face. All right, that's you. And you're like, man, I don't want to hear that. You, you instantaneously get more instruction and you think, no, that's not me. Maybe you're like, hey, I'm good enough the way I am, back off. Or maybe you feel like, man, I, I don't think I'm good enough actually. But you know what? It's actually okay that I'm not good enough and I don't need anything else, right? And maybe if you're not either of those two groups, right, maybe you're somewhere in the middle, maybe you're part of a tired group, right? Maybe you're part of the tired group, the group that gets moral instruction. You hear it and you want to obey it, and you try over and over and over again, and you seem to never get there. So when you hear moral instruction from a parent, a boss, someone that cares for you, a pastor, I come up here and do this a lot, right, or even the Bible, you feel it hits you like a ton of bricks, you almost instantaneously feel a bit discouraged. You almost instantaneously feel the weight of a boulder on your shoulders because you recognize that you're coming up against a foe in this moral instruction that you just feel like you've never been able to defeat. But here's the thing. Paul wants his readers, rather than to finding a way to relate and have a relationship with one of these experiences, to have a whole new relationship with the idea of morality. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is this, that for so many of us and the Roman readers that Paul's writing to as well, we see our lives a little bit like a performance, a little bit like a performance. Maybe it's like a dance performance. That's the imagery that I got, but I know maybe some of you guys don't relate to this, but I ain't gonna act like I do either, but it's the, it's the, it's the image that I got. So it's like a dance performance, right? And, and our partner is morality. So we're swinging around and we're doing all the fun stuff and, the, and the, the better that we do, right, the more everyone wants to applaud. And the worse that we do, the more everyone kind of looks at us like, what is that person doing? Everyone kind of looks in confusion and disappointment and, and in this idea, we're very much the center of attention. The lights are on us and we are the center of attention and what we do matters the absolute most. But for Paul, he sees morality and everything else as a part of a bigger story, right? Rather than morality being our dance partner that we get to put on a show with, 
He sees it as a part of a bigger story, not just morality, but you and me and everything else. And it's a story where the main character is not us, but rather the main character is God. Look at Romans, just the, the first verse, verse 11 here. Romans 13, 11 says, Besides this, since you know the time, it is already the hour for you to wake up from sleep because now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Now think about that, that language. Our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. In other words, morality, you, me, everything, we're all moving in a certain direction. And that direction is not the end of our life. That direction is not progression. Sometimes we get caught up in the cultural narrative that, that just society is progressing forward and everything's getting better naturally. And inevitably, as we keep on getting technological advancements and as we keep on getting more money and as we kind of provide financial means to communities that desperately need it, that the world is just gonna naturally get better. And so we think maybe that's the end point. This, and we call this in theology the lie of progression. And we think maybe that's the point that it's moving to, but that's not the point that Paul's talking about. Paul's saying that there will be a day, rather when we are perfect, a day where Christ returns and every dark moment, every failure, every shortcoming, as well as every success and every high moment and every bright spot will pale in comparison to the beauty and the light that comes from the return of the king. That that's the day salvation will come. That everything will pale in comparison to the shining light of Jesus' presence and his love and his character. And that means that no matter how moral you are, no matter how much you struggle with morality, no matter how many mistakes you make, that in that moment, what defines your life when salvation comes is not going to be whether you were good or whether you were bad, whether you were successful or whether you were a failure or whether you were strong or whether you were weak. But in the presence of the king, what will define your life is whether you were his or whether you were not his. What defines your life at the end of the day, is whether you were his or whether you were not his. Because in that moment, looking at the shining light of Jesus and his presence and his character and his love, your actions, no matter how good they were or how bad they were, will seem worthless in comparison to him. And Paul is saying our salvation is closer now. Our salvation is closer. Not that not that the day is closer where we will be morally perfect, but rather the day is closer where the morally perfect one will return. Our salvation is not in our actions, but it's in Jesus. Like that's what he's trying to get us to see here. Now, this reminded me a bit of uh, this week. For me, it actually reminded me of yesterday. Uh, as I was putting some of the kind of like structure to this last night. I thought about the fact that yesterday me and my wife went on a date. For the first time in what felt like a long time. Yeah, yeah, give me a cheer. Give her a cheer. Look, we went on a date yesterday and she's right back to holding that little fat baby back there right, right this morning, okay? And so we went on a date. And on that date, we discussed how uh, our performance all around is, as the kids say, lately it's been, been a bit mid, all right? <laughs> been a bit mid, all right? We, we got a we got a four-month-old kid, five-month-old in a couple of weeks. We got three kids under the age of five, or five and under, I should say. Uh, and life feels chaotic. And I'd be lying to you if it didn't feel like week in and week out, sometimes daily. I'm just kind of like, do you have my L for today? I'll take that L now. I just want to hold that. I'm going to hold that for a while, okay? 
And that's what it feels like. It feels like we are, like we got some struggles, and life is coming at us real, real quick. And while we were talking about that, I could almost sense this insecurity in her voice, though. Like, maybe there was some kind of connection between our recent shortcoming and our, again, rather mid-performance, uh, and, and her confidence in my affection for her. And I didn't make the connection in that moment, but the more I thought about it, 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 it really did start to break my heart. The more I thought about it last night, the more I thought about it this morning. The fact that sometimes, and maybe you relate to this, that she might have felt recently that our lives are like a show. They're like entertainment. And I'm watching her like a judge on American Idol. Aging myself on that one a little bit, but you get what I'm saying. And, and to the extent that she performs well is the extent to which I will approve of her. The extent to which she performs poorly with the expen- ex- extent to which I do not approve of her. Right, and the thing is, in that situation, I, I wish in that moment, when I'm saying it now, and I'm saying it on the record, that will be recorded for all time, um, that, that she's not my entertainment. She's my wife. And I'm not watching her to judge her and to see what's going good and what's going bad and lay a judgment on that, but rather I'm committed to her, knowing that in difficult seasons and in good seasons, that woman fills my heart with joy because of the mutual affection we have for one another and the respect we have for one another. And my commitment is to serving her and to help us get through difficult seasons and to celebrate and enjoy good seasons together. That's what our relationship looks like, and that's what I'm committed. That's what I'm committed to to maintaining. But you see, often I think we see our lives as entertainment to God in in a really similar way, That, that we're a talent show, and if we can spin enough plates on enough sticks and keep it going for long enough, he'll hit that weird little button they have on those shows that's like, dude, I approve of you, and he'll say, I love you. I approve of you. I like you. When in reality, God is the spouse committed in love and in devotion to serving and building us up through high moments and in challenging times. Right? That's the change I think Paul wants to see in our lives, in our relationship with morality and in our relationship with Jesus. Right? That we take a step away from this idea of entertainment, this idea of performance, and we take a step toward this idea of intimacy and acceptance and love. And once we begin to change our relationship with morality, right, how we're interacting with us, I think then we can kind of take a step toward the second issue at hand, which is obedience. If we're having a discussion about morality and life change and X, Y, and Z, then we are going to have a discussion about obedience. But we can't have that discussion until our relationship with morality is changed. Once we're stepping away from this idea that this is the means by which I'm approved, this is the means by which I'm loved, this is the means by which I'm affirmed, then we can finally start having a conversation about obedience, but only until we say, no, 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 that's not the right way. And we step away from that thing where, where that's at the center stage, and we take a step toward Jesus being at the center stage. And, and then we can talk about obedience. And so with that change now, that change is actually, I think, what empowers us, according to Scripture, to be more like Jesus, right? And that is to say to be more moral. If you take a look at verse 12 and 13, we start building this idea here. 12, the night is nearly over, the day is near, so let us discard the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk with decency 
as in the daytime, not in carousing, I don't know if I'm saying that right, and drunkenness, not in sexual impurity and promiscuity, not in quarreling and jealousy. So I'm going to be pretty short and to the point here because uh, I need to save some time for the back end. But once that pressure of each moment that, you know, we think it's going to define us or it's going to lead to our ultimate approval or whatever, once that's removed, right, we are, according to this verse, free to choose correctly. We're free to choose goodness once we've taken a step away from each and every moment defining our lives, right? And, and I want you to look at this. This is important, the way this verse is structured. The night is over. The day is near. In, in the English versions, semicolon, and then the word so. And that word so, the original word is more like therefore. And what that idea is building is that because the night is nearly over and the day is near, meaning the day when, again, Jesus, the morally perfect one who we belong to and who produces salvation, he is salvation because that day is near, now, therefore, choose goodness. I don't think that that connects with us. Because you are going to be saved, because he is coming to save you, choose goodness. The performance model tells you, choose goodness, and then he will save you. Choose goodness, and then he will rescue you. Choose goodness, and then you will be approved and affirmed, and from there, he'll make a decision on whether you advance to the next level or not. But what Paul is saying here is because the night is over and the day is coming where he's going to fulfill salvation, now that you understand that truth is upon you and there's nothing you can do to stop that, now, now go ahead and choose correctly. Choose goodness. And I think there's an important thing that happens uh, related to obedience when we start thinking like this. And, and when our, specifically when our relationship with morality changes. And it's really this, that the pressure is off. That the pressure is off. And hear me, when the pressure is off, the main tactic of the enemy is, is dull. What do I mean by that? I mean this, that the, the way the enemy attacks us oftentimes is first he tempts us by saying there's something life-giving here that will solve your issues. And then once we take it, he turns around and goes, you're so horrible, I can't believe you took that. God, you're so horrible. How could you do that? When we're in need, he offers us something that he claims will change everything. And the moment we take it, he comes back and goes, God, I thought you were more mature than that. I lie, not even I thought you were going to take that. That was like my first effort. You haven't even seen my big stuff yet. That was like my first joke, and you laughed already. Right? And then the guilt comes. See, living in light of the truth that salvation is near and that there is a day because of the work of Jesus and because we are his, where Jesus is going to return, two things become true. First, the tempter is defeated. That the tempter is defeated. That automatically changes everything. The second thing is that our guilt is also defeated. That our guilt is defeated and the tempter is defeated. And so if, if you come up against the tempter, remember, he's a, he's a vanquished foe, right? He's not, he's not a life-giving alternative. He's not the one going, hey, I have something very much so that can change everything. He's saying, I'm trying my hardest to scrounge everything that I can from a losing situation. So remember that. But then if in that event you end up falling to him, right, in that event you end up giving in to him, the victory of Christ comes right back to say, no, but the guilt that you incur from that is also defeated. I've conquered it. Salvation is near. It's, it's coming, right? He'll fulfill the salvation he starts 
on the cross and in his resurrection, and, and therefore those things are defeated. When our relationship with morality changes here, with moral instruction, and it's no longer us at the center stage with it, but we're in Jesus' story of redemption, the tempter is defeated, our guilt is defeated, and we're free to choose the good. But until then, until then, guard your heart, because your relationship is not changed. If your relationship with morality is not changed, if you are not clinging to Jesus for everything, every time you engage the idea of morality and moral instruction, I'm, I'm warning you that there is a high likelihood you're doing it in order to get affirmation and approval and a thumbs up and not working from affirmation, approval, and love. That's so much better. It's so much better to work from it, not to it. Now, what does it look like all put together? In verse 14, I think we see how it's all put together, right? Ver, uh, Paul says this in verse 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ, right? But means instead of living like this, wilding out, instead of that, but instead of that, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Um, To describe what this is going to look like all together, Paul uses some pretty interesting language. He says to put on Jesus, to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that word put on uh, literally means to, to clothe yourself with. It literally means to clothe yourself with. And it would have had this connotation to it. When we hear it, we hear it in this very churchy way, right? You hear it in a churchy way. You think, I need to put that on, and it's like this spiritual type of thing, and and I, it's like armor, and, uh, you know, he says armor of light before, and then all of us that are really good Christians are like, and Ephesians 6 talks about the armor of God, and then we run to that. And meanwhile, what he's trying to communicate in the original language, what his readers would have heard, was every day put on Jesus, like you do with clothes. The way you get up and you would never walk out the door completely naked, the way every day you get up and you take time, intentional time, to put on clothes, to get ready, and then to walk out the door to face the day. Likewise, every day get up and do everything you can to clothe yourself with Jesus. Take intentional, direct time to engage with him, remember him, clothe yourself with him. What does that mean? What is that idea of clothe yourself? He's not uh, clearly not clothed. I think this is what he's saying. I think he's saying every day do everything you can to remind, reinforce, and assure yourself that the mercy, grace, character of the mercy, grace, character, love, acceptance, and assurance of Jesus. Every single day, do everything you can to remind yourself, reinforce, uh, assure yourself of the mercy, grace, character, love, acceptance, and assurance of Jesus. Do everything you can to remember that. Do everything you can to remind yourself of that. Do everything you can to, re everything you can to reinforce that. Don't go a single morning, don't go a single evening, don't go a single afternoon without actively thinking is what anchors my heart and anchors my mind and anchors my emotions and anchors uh, uh, my spiritual life. Is it the truth of God's grace and forgiveness and love and care and affection and sacrifice or is it me? Every day. And he's saying you have to actively go prepare that. You have to actively go do that. It will not happen by nature. It will not happen because you woke up today. You will have to get up, and like you put clothes on every day, you will need to get up and actively pursue him and remind yourself of who he is in order for you to see your salvation as him and not you. It will take a daily, daily effort. 
And I think a lot of this does come with proximity. It, it comes with being close to him. It comes with feeling near to him. What do I mean? What I mean is that this reminded me of, uh, of one of my one of my experiences in my when I was a wild youth. Uh, in my days as a wild youth, some of you know I was what they like to call a wild boy. Um, I was out there wilding, and uh, I could I could say wild in another way, but I'll, I'll resist the temptation. And I specifically remember there was a group of us who were like wild boys together. You could say we were the wild boy. Um, and what would happen is that we would always hang out, except for you got to remember that we're all like 16, 17, 18, 19. I think the oldest one of us was 20. And at that age, doing the things we were doing, no one is a productive citizen. No, we were like high all day, like we were pretty much addicts and just walked around playing music and, and kind of slumming around. And when you're that character, you don't have the functioning responsibilities to say pay rent. Meaning you don't have your, your own place. You don't have this place where you go and, and you kind of like get together and everybody can crowd around. Most of the time we were trying to just going from spot to spot, getting high at a park, uh, you know, going messing around at some, you know, just, I remember we would just sit at stores and do dumb things. Like if TikTok was around back then, I think we would have been famous to be quite fair. Because we would just go to like some random Walmart and start doing wild things. That's just kind of what we did. Except for at some point, two of the young men, uh, they, they pretty much got access to their own spot. They got access to their own place. They were there all the time. They never had to leave. They never had to go anywhere, and they never had to work. And we would just go there, get high, and mess around for days on end. And it was because it was their mother's space. It was their mother's apartment. But the mother wasn't ever there. She would be gone for four or five days at a time. And she would just come back, get dressed, and leave again. She had to work, she had some other kids, some other responsibilities she needed to attend to, and so the two boys would stay there, and then we would all be there as well, and we would just have this big old space, our own apartment in a lot of ways, just go and mess around. And one day, <laughs> until one day, when we were all in there, it's probably 1.30 in the afternoon, like I said, none of us are productive citizens at this point in our lives. But like 1.30 in the afternoon, we hear, <laughs> And everyone is like, dude, we're all accounted for in here. And we look left, and sure enough, in walks their mother. And when I tell you that everyone besides those two young men scattered like roaches when a light turns on, I could not express it to you any more accurately. We quite literally got up, I quite literally ran. <laughs> I quite literally got up and took off. And it was like the moment the mother got back into the apartment the weight of all the true responsibility came crashing down so hard. Outside of that, man, we were off doing whatever we wanted. We were in that little room, two-bedroom apartment, messing around, being dumb, sinning. And then when she got home, the weight of real life came back down so hard. I really do contrast that, and there's a difference in age here, but I do contrast that with like my kids right now how like every single day, they get up, they come downstairs, and they see mom and dad. And every moment they come down and see mom and dad, it's a reminder of a few things. It's a reminder of who they are, it's a reminder of whose they are. And it's a reminder of what's expected of them. The moment, the moment 
that mother walked back in, the reminder of all those things came crashing down on those two young men. She went to my mom and the reminder came crashing down on me. And we ran. And I think a lot of the time, our lives are, are like that. Right? We, we act as though Jesus isn't present. We don't head downstairs to see him. We try to create these spaces where we isolate ourselves from him. And then from there, we lose sight of who we are. We lose sight of whose we are. We lose sight of what we're called to. And the only way the truth of those things comes crashing back down is when we just go downstairs and look at Jesus and say, how are you today? Good morning. And something so simple does so much. Something so simple goes so far. And yet when we're isolating ourselves, when we're not spending time with Jesus, when we're not drawing close to him, again, this idea of proximity, being near to him, developing intimacy with him, right? We forget all the truths that anchor our hearts to the fact that this man, this person is my salvation. I belong to him. That's what defines me. And we go out there and we try to find everything else we can to define us. Every single thing, anything. Lovingly, are you spending time with Jesus? Do you spend time with Jesus? I know that that is something you hear a lot. Do you open your Bible? Do you read the words of the Bible? Do you read them as a checklist that's connected to morality? Or do you read them as words that come from a loving Father to whom you belong? Which one, how do you read it? Are you in prayer? Are you doing anything? How much? When, how often are you trying to do everything you can to connect with and remind yourself, reassure yourself, reinforce uh, of the character, love, mercy, grace of Jesus? That's what, that's what Paul's saying here. Put that on. Put him on. Go and remind yourself every day. Remind yourself of that truth every day. Without it, this, without that level of intimacy, without that proximity without that connection with him. That's why one of our deals is connect with God, right? Without that, um, we don't ever really understand how he himself is our salvation. We never really understand how he fulfills this actual instruction, right? We'll never understand how Jesus, as an example, is our sacrifice. We'll never understand how Jesus himself does what we're, what we're being called to do. That Jesus, the, the literal son of God, goes away in the mornings, and sometimes his disciples can't find him, and, and he's praying, he's connecting with God, that he quite literally describes his relationship with God the Father as me and the Father are one. Yet he takes the cross and experiences separation and isolation from God so that you and me could now be one with him. Right? We don't understand that Jesus is, is really victorious over our sin until we're spending time with him. And we realize that the resurrected Savior has now declared himself king and conqueror over every moment of guilt, every moment of sin, every moment of suffering, every moment of, of failure, until we're with him. And in each one of those moments, we mess up, we fall down, and he picks us back up. And until we're spending active time with him, we're really just a child out there trying to figure it out on our own. And we develop a warped and incredibly broken vision of the world and our lives and our humanity until we just come back and nestle our, ourself next to the chest in the embrace of Jesus. We don't know. We don't know what we're called to, who we are and whose we are until, until that moment. 
until we're spending time with him. Until we see the man on the cross and we see the risen Savior, we'll never really truly understand what it means to leave behind our relationship with morality as a means of affirmation and approval and step toward Jesus as a means of love and wholeness. That doesn't happen until we spend time with him. A couple of, of takeaways from this text that I want to finish up with. Um, all that makes sense, but I want to try to put it in some really practical ideas for you to close up. The first one is this. Stop making yourself the center of attention. Stop making yourself the center of attention. Uh, if any of you know me and you know my response to walking into a room full of people you may be looking at me and going, I hope this guy follows his own advice. <laughs> um, stop making yourself, Josh, stop making yourself uh, the center of attention. The story is not about you. Every moment we try to grab it and go, but look what I've done. And then we attach identity to it. We're putting ourselves right back under a light and going, can you look at me? Can you look at me? Please, everyone just look at me. God, just look at me. Someone look at me. When God is looking, it's looking at basically being like, man, if you could just look at me, if you could just look at me, then the aching of your heart that wants that light to be satisfied when you turn and see the actual light. Look at me. You need to repent and say, God, I'm sorry that I'm so proud. I'm sorry. Maybe, again, you're working for one of these categories, and you're like, I want to show everyone how great I am man, maybe you need to repent because you're a little proud. Maybe you need to repent of that. Maybe you're the rebel and you're going, no, 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 I don't need the light. I don't need anything. Maybe you need to repent of that. Maybe you just need to come and receive some mercy and relief because you're tired. Just take yourself out from center stage and I promise you, it'll be a whole lot better. Your relationships will be better. Everything in your life will pretty much be better. Because instead of looking at someone and being like, that person was rude to me, I don't want to talk to them anymore. You have opportunities to be like, that person was rude to me, I hope they're okay. And those little changes happen when we just say, the world and the story of life does not revolve around me. It's a huge change. So, so stop making yourself the center of attention. The second one um, is remember that sin is a conquered enemy and not a life-giving alternative. Man, once we see sin and the tempter correctly, I'm telling you, it is like life-changing. I think we, un we sometimes don't understand when we're, okay, let me say it like this. When we are seeing morality as a means of approval, when we're seeing our actions and, and, and our, our, our successes and failures, the means of coming to, uh, coming, um, being approved, being affirmed, right? We see something like salvation is near and the return of Jesus is quite frankly terrifying. Because if you're like me, I have an index of good and bad, and I'm still working that out. I'm still trying to get the balances just right. And the idea of Jesus returning and me being caught with my proverbial, you know, pants down is terrifying to me. But when we see Jesus as the one whose return is imminent and he will finish the conquering of the enemy, then the actual whispers and temptation just don't seem as tempting to me. If I'm being quite honest, they just don't seem tempting. The stakes are so much lower, not because it doesn't matter,
but because Jesus is so much bigger. And, and that simple vision reminds us that, man, I don't think I need what you're offering because what you're offering is already defeated. It's like going to the trash can when I have food and going, hope I think of something good today. When I have a fridge full, uh, pick your favorite food, right? And so, so remember that sin is a conquered enemy, not a life-giving alternative. And the last one is make space to come down and see Jesus. I know you're busy. I feel busy. Not you, me, I feel busy. And basically serving Jesus is like my job. And I still feel busy. And it is so easy to kind of just be like, okay, I gotta go. I scheduled a, a meeting early in the morning so I could get up at 5.30 or 6 or whatever and get my day started so that when I get out at 7, I'm like, look at all this day that I have left. I'm so productive. And there's so many days that I lay my, my head on the pillow at night, finding that I'm relying more on how I'm being a pastor instead of how I'm being a son. And unless I'm spending time with Jesus, again, I don't remember whose I am, I don't remember who I am. So take time, come downstairs, don't just get dressed upstairs and run out the door, come downstairs, say hi to him, spend time with him. If it's in the morning, if it's in the evening, if it's in the afternoon, if it's all of them. This man, Paul, is basically being like, hey, every moment you get, try to remind yourself of the character of Jesus. I don't know if you need the Bible for each one of those. I don't know if you need to be like, hey, guys, everybody pause. I'm going to take a prayer break. I don't know if that's what you need every time. I talk about the fact that some of y'all like mountains and, and stuff like that, and that's your thing. Do that. I'm telling you, though, every moment you get, Paul's like, clothe yourself with this Jesus. Remind yourself of his character and his love and his compassion and his grace and his mercy. Every opportunity you have, come down and make some space to see Jesus. Make some space for him. Friend, I am, I am hopeful. Where am I at? All right. I'm hopeful that if we can make some of these changes, right, that the nature of your relationship with God, right, the way you experience Jesus can dramatically change, that it can actually change. And that experience can actually change your life. The question was, how does being close to Jesus change the way we live? It's because when our way of life isn't connected to our relationship with Jesus, but the approval of Jesus, then the pressure of that, the burden of that, it sucks. But when we make this transition from seeing our lives that way, in the moral way, in the performance way, into this, this space of intimacy and connection, man, I do think it changes our lives. I do think it changes our lives. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity we have to worship you, the opportunity we have to speak of your salvation, that drawing near is the return of the king who comes um, to use someone's language this morning to vanquish foes, to vanquish sin, to vanquish death. That you're gonna conquer those things on the cross and your return will ultimately end them forever. That's the truth of our salvation, that you are our salvation. That you are the life, the way, the truth. You're what brings life to our hearts. 
I would stand up here and proclaim that all day, every day, Father, that you are the one that brings life to my emotions, that my most broken and my most, my most broken, my most detached are the moments when I am far from you. And yet in the midst of broken circumstances and challenges, I know that my moments closest to you are the ones where I experience the most life. Suffering, anything else, and thank you that your presence is the sustaining life for each and every person here. But let us draw close to you. Let us come down and see you. Let's make space for you, make time for you. Let's pursue you, not to try and earn your affirmation and approval, but like a loving parent to experience the joy of where we come from and whose we are. Thank you, Father. I love you. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.